Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fall, the editor of the Toolkit. My guest today is the great screenwriter, filmmaker, and film critic, Paul Schrader, whose new film, First Reform, is being put to theaters this Friday, May 24. Also this month, the University of uh, California Press is reissuing Paul's book from, is it 71? Is that how long it was? 72. 72. Um, the Transcendental Style in Film. Uh, Paul looked at the um, intersection of uh, spiritual and film through the work of Ozu and Brisson and Dreyer. And in the new edition, there's 35 pages that kind of picks up where you'd left off and kind of how things have changed since then. You know, and the reason I'm emphasizing this book, there's, there's in my head when I was reading that new introduction, there was such a connection between this film and that book. And, and you talk about how the religion that you grew up with and that's such a big part of you and then the falling in love with cinema, which you had viewed as profane. And then I think it was Pickpocket, but in general the work of Bresson and those other directors, you started to see for the first time, instead of this gap, people using kind of film form and film style to blend them together. And that book was an exploration of how they were doing it. Two years later, you're off, you know, writing, filmmaking, Taxi Driver's not that far away. And the two stay separate, at least in your head, in terms of your own work. And this film, and maybe I'm way off here, feels like I'm wondering how much of revisiting this text and also doing a film for the first time where these things aren't separate. Well, there's uh, been a serendipity involved. Two things happened about three years ago. Uh, one thing was I was giving an award to Pawlowski for Ida at the New York Society of Film Critics. And uh, we got to talking about his film, Spirituality in Film, my book, the new economics of lower cost filmmaking. And I walked uptown and I said, well, you know, it's time to write that book. You, I write that screenplay you swore you would never write. You're gonna be 70 next year, it's time to write it. And so that set my mind in motion there. And then two months later, I got a message from the SCMS that in their annual convention in Atlanta, they were having a panel on revisiting transcendental style, and uh, three people would be delivering papers, one from Baylor and one from Portugal and one from Israel. And they asked me if I wanted to sit in, and I did. And you know, listening to those uh, position papers, I thought to myself, you know, if anybody uh, is rethinking trans transcendental style, it should be me. <laughs> so I set about uh, rethinking it. Ironically, I was on these two parallel paths, uh, and uh, the one was moving toward a certain, a quieter kind of contemplative movie, and the other was trying to figure out how my thinking had changed in the intervening 45 years on that book. And, you know, they don't overlap directly, I mean, I don't discuss the film in the book or anything like that. Uh, but then clearly they were feeding into each other. You say that script that you've had for a while that you never did, so, so that idea that there was, I don't know if it's the storyline or just even the idea of Ethan's character, Ethan Hawke's character in this movie, I mean, is there just something that was, you've always kind of been afraid no, to, to, that you well, had no, in the back drawer that you wanted to No, know? I mean, because I had written that book, a number of 
people are tried to draw a connection between that book and the films I right, ended yeah. up doing. And I would say, no, 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 that's not me. I'm not that guy. I like those kind of films, but I don't want to make them. I have no interest in making them. The, uh, uh, you know, I'm sort of intoxicated with the engines of apathy, uh, empathy and action. And uh, those are not in the Transcendental Toolkit. And you'll never find me skating on that thin branch, Sony and Ice. <laughs> and so that's the way it was. And I never, and also bear in mind that there's no subsidies for film in this country. Mm. A lot of those European directors got that freedom because of government subsidies. But every time I made a film, I had to go out and pitch it as if it would make somebody money. And probably the other reason I never pitched this idea or never thought to is because I didn't think I could convince anyone to make it. And that would only hurt me by having tried and failed. And, but now, with the economics approximately cut in half, you know, a film which was uh, financially irresponsible uh, at an earlier time, it now becomes responsible. Mm-hmm. You know, part of it also, you know, I have to say, as someone that has, has seen all of your movies, have, have read a lot of, of what you've had to write about film, um, you know, I know you say that when people tried to make a connection between this book and your earlier work, you know, there's a lot of sex and a lot of violence and a lot of, a lot of melodrama in a, a Paul Schrader film, which is, which is not the work of Raison and Ozu, but, but there's something about First Reformed that feels to me somehow as like a culmination, as if a lot of what I have been seeing in your work, that this becomes something that it was all leading to in, in a way. I, and that was a feeling I had just instinctively, not thinking about it when I walked out of that theater. Yeah, well, um, you know, a seed, or t- two seeds that were planted in, in March of 1969. Uh, I was reviewing for the LA Free Press, the counterculture paper, and I went to see Pickpocket at Las Vegas. And one, I saw this kind of bridge of style between the world of belief and the world of cinema. And that ended up being the book. And then the other thing, I realized that I could possibly have a place in filmmaking. I was a film critic. I was a very snooty, elitist film critic. Uh, I believe that critics are inherently better than uh, filmmakers, and we would tell you when you made a good film. I was living in a house with four UCLA film students who were making a biker film for Roger Corman, Naked Angels. And, you know, I thought that was quite declassé. And I was better than that. I'm sure they thought the same of me. Uh, But then I I looked at this movie and I said, well, here's a guy, he writes in a journal. Then he goes out and steals some stuff, writes in a journal some more. Goes out, talks to his next door neighbor, writes in a journal some more. I said, I could make that movie. You know, and uh, and uh, you know, four years later, I wrote Taxi Driver, which is that movie. <laughs> so you know that petri dish was seeded uh, uh, all those years ago, and now, uh, almost fifty years later, the uh, the seed that developed into Taxi Driver and other scripts has swung up and joined with the seed 
that developed uh, that book. And so uh, this moment for me is quite satisfying because it has a sense of completion about it. It's also wonderful. <laughs> I mean, and I don't mean this as a way of, in any way, criticizing any of the other work, but there's a clarity and there's a, there, there is something, there's always a struggle in your films. There's a character always struggling, but the, in, in the way that you see this character and the way that you make us see him, there, there's a clarity and a purity in, in something that is so strong. I mean, this film is, is amazingly strong and it, 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 it feels almost like, I, I wonder almost how much of it is also thinking in terms of this transcendental cinema, of using this language that you had been studying and watching and, and having a vehicle to use it. Well, it was the first time that I uh, act, uh, intentionally used withholding devices. And the idea of spiritual and cinema is all built on withholding devices. We'll, we give you less. Less than you expect, less than you want, and then the burden is on to you whether to participate by giving us more. And there's a whole buffet of these kinds of withholding devices, and different directors use them in different combinations. But I never um, intentionally set out to use them before this film. Uh, a number of American directors have, and obviously a number of world directors have. But I was always, you know, seeking to please and and uh, impress the viewer rather than lean away from him. Now, how did you come to you know? Please have coffee. Don't don't wait. Um, Ethan Hawke is wonderful in this movie. Um, I don't know that if had before I had seen this performance, I would have thought of him as a natural. If I had read your script, I don't know if that's the person they would have popped up to me. And, and largely because it's, it's uh, for him, a very internal performance. A kind of, I, I think of him in, in, in talky, philosophical, yeah. you know, Rick Langlager films. And, and this movie, he's, he's very inside himself and, and, and kind of quiet and well, small. Well, first he has a necessary physiognomy. There is a certain kind of man who lends himself to uh, a suffering man of the cloth, you know, like, like Claude Ledoux in Country Priest or Montgomery Clifton, I confess. So he has that look. But then so did Jake Gyllenhaal and Oscar Isaac. But he was uh, 10 years older than those two. And he was starting to get some very interesting lines in his face. And I thought to myself, I think he's just about the right age now. Just the right age. And the first time I met with him, I said to him what I just said to you, this is a lean back performance. Every time you feel the viewer embracing you, lean away. And he got that immediately. And that, of course, um, changed his whole approach to acting in this particular film. In that sense of, of less is more to a certain degree? A little. Well, less and more and leaning back are two different things. Less, I mean, they're very, they're very, very similar concepts. Uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna get, this is a kind of a, a tar baby of a discussion. I, I'm <laughs> afraid I get into it, I won't be able to get out of it. Uh, fair enough. Um, what about in that sense of 
also moving the camera to a certain degree in that you know a lot of the things that you had wrote, wrote about is, is, is an element of withholding. But then in this movie, there are these very specific, very beautiful moments of movement that are rare. How did you kind of... Very, very rare. The, uh, the principle was, we don't move the camera. Mm. We don't pan, we don't tilt. That was the same way they did it in Ida. Although there is one pan and one tilt in Ida. And uh, so, uh, but the beauty of making a rule is you get to break it. Mm -hmm. uh, so you make a rule, lock off, lock off, lock off. And then all of a sudden at one moment, you break it with this odd lateral pan outside the house where he exits frame and you know, they walk over. So why did I spend so much effort making a rule and then break it? Well, you do that so you can make the rule again. Mm -hmm. And you make the audience aware of the rule. Um, and uh, so the, uh, uh, and it's the same thing like in uh, A Silent Light, the film by Carlos Regalos. Mm. He makes all these strict rules and boom, he breaks one and then he goes back to them again. Is that one of the films, I sensed a little kindred spirit with that one. Is that, is that one of the, what were some of the films that, this film seems to be in conversation with a few. I mean, yeah, it's uh, obviously with um, Mirror, Winter Light, Country Priest, Ordet, uh, Wise Blood, um, uh, Silent Light. Mm -hmm. um, there's a little Bruno Dumont in there. Uh, and then, of course, you know, obviously the stuff I've, I've cribbed from mm -hmm. Taxi Driver and other sources. Well, you know, one thing about. There's a little bit of, of the Romanians, are, a little bit of the Romanians in there, too. You know, one thing I want to. The, 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 the parallel with Taxi Driver, and not necessarily specifically Taxi Driver, but there's a, you've talked about this before, and I'm wondering if you could speak to it in terms of where you go with this film in that sense of, I think you've referred to it as monovision, but that idea that... Monocular vision. Yeah, we're, we're, we're in one... <clears throat> we have one perspective. We have one character's perspective, and obviously where you go with... where you and Scorsese went with that. And Taxi Driver is one thing, but you're, you're playing both... You're playing with that in this film, and also, once again, um, the, the voiceover and the, yeah. the kind of diary format. And I, I, and I mean, obviously those are parallels between the two films, but... I, they, I, they, work in tandem. Mm -hmm. they work in tandem. They work in tandem. The diary voiceover is a form of intravenous feeding. I got, a, I got a tube, I've got it in your arm, I'm nourishing you and you can't taste it. So I'm slowly changing your, phys your physical feelings without you realizing it. At the same time, I'm depriving you of any other view of the world than that of the main character. He's in every scene, and we see the world that he sees. So while you're hearing his thoughts, many of which are inconsequential, but while you're getting those his nourishment, you're seeing only his world. And you've got to play this game, I would say, 45 minutes, almost to an hour, before people lock in, and before they, they feel it at home inside this character. And then you start to, he starts to burge. He starts swinging away, uh, a little at first, then more. And until you as a viewer come to a point where you have identified with a character that you no longer think worthy of identification.
And that is a wonderful thing to do to a viewer because it cracks open their skull because they're, they're in a very uncomfortable place. And how they deal with that uncomfortability is kind of the magic of the movies. You, you can't really predict how they will deal with it, but you know it's going to be interesting. <laughs> I don't know how much, this film's been being, I mean, <clears throat> I think he showed it first at Cannes this time last year, right? No, uh, uh, Venice. Venice, okay. Um, so you've, you've shown it to, uh, I had a few screenings of it. I know you were in Montclair last weekend in Boston, I think. Recent. What, have you gotten a little bit of that feedback of what that third act was like for, for audiences? Have you, is it one of these things where, because I always find that fascinating, is where, where they go when you crack them open. <laughs> it, it plays pretty much the same to different age groups. Uh, you know, you can hear a pin drop. Um, you know, some people are uh, frustrated or troubled by the ending, which is, you know, intentionally enigmatic. Uh, you know, I just read Dave Edelstein's piece, and Dave's a smart guy, but he called the ending ludicrous. Well, it's not a rational ending, you know, and so, uh, I suppose if you wanted it to be a rational ending, you know. Uh, but I tell you, it's a lot better. I had three sort of endings in mind for the film, and I finally settled on one. One, I mean, I mean we don't care about spoilers, do we? No, no. no. Well, at this point, by the way, well, at this point, you know we're talking about the ending. We're 18 minutes in, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> if you want, we're in about five minutes, we're gonna talk about the book, so you can fast forward for five minutes if you want. Okay, mm -hmm. so th this man has a, an explosive device, mm -hmm. and he's planning on detonating it. And he's, uh, so one thing that could have happened is he does detonate it, and you have the peck and pause, the brisky point ending, mm -hmm. where it just, pieces, four or five minutes of slow motion, body parts and pieces of wood and eyeballs floating through the air. And that would have been a, a real wallop <laughs> to the viewer. And, uh, but it would have also been quite expensive. And um, then I thought uh, I might do the uh, Diary of a Country Priest ending, which is where he falls out of frame and you're left with the image of the crucifix. And uh, so I, I originally wrote it that way, and I, I was a little dissatisfied with it. It just didn't seem to have enough punch. And I gave it to Kent Jones, and Kent said, oh, I thought you were gonna go for the Ordette ending. And as soon as Kent said that, I said, yeah, absolutely, it has to be the Ordette ending, which is the a response to a miracle by, with carnality. Well, a woman is risen from the dead, and her husband doesn't say, oh, praise be to God, he just says, let me kiss her, let me hug her. And, um, and so you have this ending now, and uh, uh, usually after, after the end of the screening, I usually ask if I have a chance, you know, how many people think he's alive at the end? And it quite often breaks down almost uh, one to one. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, that's a good ratio. About half the people think he's alive, the other half think he's dead, that's good. Because I can't answer that question, because I don't know which, I put both I put both answers in there, mm -hmm. but without making a choice myself. The wire and the and the the kind of what he's doing to himself also, for me, in terms of where we were going with yeah. it, it, 
it's something that is, it's so visually uncomfortable to see someone like that, which is different than violence. Do you know, the, yeah. it, it, it's something you could, and then, and then even when she, he brings her into it, you could almost, uh, you, know, you could feel that. And one imagines that that feeling, regardless of what one takes from the imagery, is, 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 is something that really kind of spoke to you. Yeah, well, it's like Nick Nolte pulling his teeth out, tooth out in affliction. Um, but that was a reference to Wiseblood, mm -hmm. the Flannery O'Connor book. Hazel Motes, at the end of it, puts out his eyes and wraps mm -hmm. himself up in barbed wire and goes out the street preaching. There's another aspect to this, which is that, you know, this is a crisis of faith movie, and um, you, you use kind of, well, you don't kind of use it, in the sense of what, what's happening to the planet um, and kind of the extremes of what we could be facing in, in 50 years. And one sense is that from your writing alone, that that is something that you, at your stage in life, are actively thinking about where this life, I know you have children, or about where things are going. This seems to be like, not something that is just a device for you, but is also something that is, you can understand as being a crisis of faith. Yes, I mean, you know, mankind has been having a discussion for about 10,000 years, you know, uh, who are we, why are we here? And it was always a hypothetical conversation. Uh, you would have it and then your children would have it and then their children would have it, century after century. Well, we're now started looking at that conversation as not being quite so hypothetical. And that perhaps uh, Homo sapiens, as we now know them, will not see the end of this century. Well, that is a big change in the conversation. You know, Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote Sapiens, I was just reading an interview with him, where he said, you know, it'll be the biggest event since the origin of life, you know, uh, 40 billion years ago. <laughs> one sense is that this is not obviously something that's on your mind, but that it's very important in that, in that being in that Ethan Hawke world that the audience really can relate to why this throws him a monkey wrench. I think he has that line in the voiceover of like, I found it both exhilarating and, and <laughs> I can't remember, but like, yeah. like, and that sense of like, here's a, here's a man who is capable of answering these questions and counseling him, but is, is, is finding himself completely taken by this Michael character. Yeah, well, he has a sickness, you know, it's Kierkegaard's sickness unto death, despair and angst. He identifies it with the boy, he talked to the boy about the, the blackness. And so, uh, but he fails with that boy. And his sickness, which was leading him to a very selfish, lonely place, his own death, now suddenly he catches the virus. And he starts to see his death as a as a bigger gesture in in the the planet of things, and and uh, and this is a, a particular pathology that's almost built into the DNA of Christianity because of you know Old Testament blood sacrifices and the New Testament symbolic Christ uh, dies once, but it's always blood, and, you know, washed in the blood and Manuel's veins. And when Christians go off the rails, this is often one of the ways they go. 
they get confused about the difference between Christ's sacrifice and their own. And they start to think that if they suffer, if they bleed, they will affect their own salvation in the way that Christ did. Uh, this clearly isn't what Jesus was teaching. But every Easter, you turn on the news and you see them out there flagellating themselves and, uh, and you know, nailing themselves to crosses. And, and, and you realize um, you know, how embedded this pathology is. And of course, it is the same pathology as jihadism. I want to shift, we have a few minutes left, I just want to shift to um, the book for a second. You know, one of the reasons that you also revisited the book, at least from my interpretation, is, is that since 1971-72 when you wrote this, that there's also been a shift in, quote, slow cinema that has less to do with the spiritual and more to do with the time, but that, that in revisiting what, what this means, that you, you've, there's been a, a further shift away from narrative and kind of a, people kind of growing off what you had written, you know, what, what, what happened in 71 and 72 that you were capturing. Yeah, well, what, the mistake I made with the book was I thought this, this thing called Transcendental Style was a, a, a sort of standalone phenomenon. Uh, I, you know, I came to realize that it was part of the larger phenomenon, uh, post-war neorealism, uh, or what Jill Deleuze called the time image, the shift in the history of cinema from the movement inside the image being critical to the shift of the length of the image being observed. And, and right around that time, you know, a number of directors, you know, De Sica and Rosalini and Antonioni and Bergman and Bresson, uh, Rivette, you know, they started slowing things down. And it's very clear that it's happening. And it's changing the phenomenology of viewing. It's creating this concept of duration and of dead time. Uh, Whereas, I, sometimes I, I like to call it the scalpel of boredom. And you have to be very accomplished to use the scalpel of boredom effectively. And when, because when you don't, you just have plain old boredom. Right. And, uh, and so these first masters of it were quite good. And, and, uh, you know, but now, like any other movement, as it progresses and becomes more extreme, you know, you're getting you know, more and more cases of boredom for its own sake, uh, which is completely artistically valid, but it's not really part of the tradition of commercial cinema. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the this is a gallery cinema, and this is a uh, uh, you know an installation cinema or a meditate meditation chapel cinema, and and uh, so. Uh, what I, in that article, what I, I, I laid out this cosmogony where all these directors were after breaking free from the nucleus of narrative and their electrons shooting them off in these three directions. And then I also drew what I called the Tarkovsky ring, which is what happens when an artist goes through the Tarkovsky ring. That's the point when he's no longer making cinema for paying audience. He's making it for institutions, for museums, and so mm -hmm. forth. And uh, so that was, uh, those were a couple of the insights I had uh, in that new essay. Um, you, you split it up into those, those three directions. You've got um, 
you've got what you call security camera, a sense of watching day to day. Yeah. You've got um, yeah, mandala, which I, I think of as like this kind of meditative, yeah. like never-ending narrative. And you've got the art gallery, which I think we could call like abstract use of form, light yeah. color, an aspect of that. And so, like inside that circle, that Tarkovsky, sim so we'll, we'll leave the eight-hour Pavlov and Bellatar out there for a second, and work inside the circle. One thing that's very obvious to me in, in, in reading this is that you are still very much a student of the medium and also staying current in terms of writing in the new filmmakers. Um, I instead of just constantly looking back, and I'm curious, you do a good job of kind of in your way of seeing things, of, of putting people in this chart. What do you see in terms of people that are in this circle that excites you? What filmmakers are exciting you that are, that are working? Well, that's a, a quite a big question because you know, we have now an explosion of product because of technology. Mm. Anybody can be a filmmaker. Uh, anybody can make a film, nobody can make a living. That's our new mantra. And so you are getting films made by people who would have never made films in the past simply because they could do it. You know, it's just as easy to make a film as to write a poem or a piece of music or a painting, and just as lucrative. You know, how many, what percentage of painters make a living? You know, some three, four percent. Well, that's that's where we're headed with film too. But what this has done, it has created a whole new field, like a big field of flowers, of new f talents that were not, you know, were not made for the rigors of financing and cinema and all of that. And now all of a sudden they can make them. And they're popping up all over, and particularly in terms of first films. I've never seen a season where there's so many good first films. And uh, just because of the technology, if you can't, if you haven't figured out how to make a film by the time you're 12, you are behind the curve. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, I don't, uh, um, I don't want to get into specifics. I can certainly, mm -hmm. you know, because the moment you mention one film or another mm. film, then you realize, oh, I, 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 I missed that film that I really liked. Mm. I understand. Uh, but it is. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's a bumper crop of quality and it's a famine of, of view of, of financing, of, of financing. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're in this crazy thing, you know. How many indie films are made a year, like 15 or 20,000? How many of them get their head above the crowd and get noticed? 10 maybe? Right. Uh, you know. Those are, those are brutal numbers. <laughs> and uh, so it, it is, uh, it is a, a very tricky time that way. And, and it's no longer possible to keep on top. You know, and in the past, a good hardworking critic could keep on top of his trade. You can't anymore. There's too much. Well, it's funny, you reference, um, I'm the one that works for IndieWire, you're the one that's making films, and you referenced a lot of new films that don't even get shown at festivals <laughs> and uh, that are, are very much in that kind of art world. So clearly you are still seeing 
quite a bit and reading quite a bit. Well, also, I've been on the festival circuit the last six months. With the film, so you get to see Yeah, that. so you, you start hearing about films. Mm -hmm. You know, you're in the Rotterdam Film Festival, or you're in Dublin, or you're in uh, Cabo, and people talk about, oh, that was a film the other day, boom, and then you never hear of it again. <laughs> you know? Let me ask you this. You, 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 we keep going back to the, to the early 70s, and you being a, this kind of period right before you kind of went into filmmaking and, and screenwriting. And towards the first half of the history of film, film theory and filmmaking weren't necessarily separate entities. A lot of these film movements were, it was very tied. Nowadays, some of the things that you're writing about are put into an academic realm. Yeah. I, I'm wondering in that sense of, as you as a filmmaker, how much of this is something uh, that feeds you, or is it something where you're too far in your head in, you know, you're making your own transcendental style film and you're sitting there, do I, it, it's less, it, it's instinct you, you or... You really do have to keep them away from each other. And why is that? The critic and the artist. Uh, the, the critic, uh, as I said in the past, is like a medical examiner. He just wants to get that corpse on the table and open it up and see how and why it lived. And the artist is like a pregnant woman who only wants to give birth to a living and healthy entity. So you cannot let that critic into the birthing room because he will kill that baby. And if you are both, you have to be aware of that and say, I'm not going to try to understand this so much. Mm -hmm. There's a mystery here, let it be. I'm not quite sure why he does this. I'm not quite sure why he says that. And so the artist needs to have questions and mystery to, to yeah. explore. Yeah, and he can't let the critic try to solve them mm -hmm. um, because uh, the critic will do that instinctively. And uh, so part of you just has to say, let the mystery be. Uh, there's a song by Iris DeMenth called Let the Mystery Be. Mm -hmm. And we, you have to do that at times. But you also came up with a group of filmmakers who are cinephiles and who I, I think, including yourself, their toolbox, their palette was extended by thinking about these things, by exploring these things to a certain, versus having just, just stayed in one realm. Is that fair? I'm, I'm not quite sure I understand. Well, in the sense that having thought so much about this and, and struggling with these things, that when it comes to your own creation, you are richer, deeper filmmakers with more, with, with, with a deeper language or a deeper sense of, of what's possible. Yes, but I mean, there's different types of filmmaker. I always admire the type of filmmaker who likes to start from scratch, the Stanley Kubrick model. You know, I got a, I got a new problem, I'm gonna get a new solution. You know, whether it's called the steady cam or the low light cam, whatever. And so he almost reinvents cinema as he prepares a film. Uh, that to me is so exhilarating because it's such a challenge. Can I, make, can I actually make a Kickstarter film? Is it possible for Brett and I to do this? Can I make a Tarantino film? What would that look like if I made a Tarantino film? You know, um, so that, challenge. Like I'm, I, I have a number of things I'm leaning toward now and each one is unlike I've ever done before and that's what I find most attractive uh, and you know you can say all you want about First Reformed being in the tradition 
of my films, but I have never made a withholding film before. No, no. And I wasn't sure how it would work. And I remember the first time I screened it for some people, I said, now, I gotta warn you, this is a very slow movie. The movie ended and someone said, that's not a slow movie. <laughs> I hadn't realized it myself yet. Well, I will say this, it is an excellent movie. It is the best thing that I've seen so far this year. People really need to see it. It's very, very good. And thank you for taking the time, sir. Thank you.